0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, episode number 81. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. You find folks are there week in and week out bringing this stuff to our attention, and I truly believe sharing knowledge makes us all a little bit safer. I'm joined once again by the one and only Matt Bromley, who is here to help make sense of what we're seeing coming through the wire. How are you doing today, Matt?
1: Hey, Chris, doing well. It's another day that we get a chance to go over this awesome intel. I gotta say, there's been some exciting things, and again, I'm, I'm careful to give compliments, right? But a lot of exciting things happening in the, in the world of Intel and cybersecurity. But I uh, really actually want to turn the mic back to you, Chris, because I think you're about to kick off something, uh, a, a really, really awesome thing that uh, I, I'm excited to, to hear about. So I'm going to hand it back to you and say, if anyone's got good news today, it's you.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh, so we're recording this on Giving Tuesday. And today we launched a community initiative that we call Cybersecurity Cares. This is the second year we've run it. Last year, I think we raised $26,065.60 in support of people in need. It's a grassroots volunteer initiative. It's just a collective of grateful people working in the cybersecurity industry trying to give something back. We have a lot of fun doing it. This year, we're working to support Becky's Fund, which is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to ending domestic violence. We chose this charity for 2023 because as defenders, we feel that everybody should feel safe in their home. So it's a great cause, and we started raising money today. So by the time you hear this, it'll probably be a couple days past. But we're already $10,230 on the board, and we're going to go until December 15th, where we wrap things up with an all-day live stream telethon that will be streamed on YouTube and LinkedIn. The telethon will have lots of recognizable folks from across the industry, some musical guests, some educational stuff. We're going to have mental health hackers come on and kind of give us a master class and taking care of all that anxiety. It's going to be a lot of fun. So if this sounds like something that you'd like to be involved with, to attend the telethon, get your company involved, you can learn more, make a donation at uh, cybersecurity-cares.com. That's cybersecurity-cares.com. All right, let's get to the intel. The first one we have is from Enfocus Research Labs about how the Dark Casino APT group has leveraged the recently disclosed WinRAR zero-day vulnerability tracked as CVE-2023-38831. Regular listeners of the show will recognize this one. We covered it about a month ago and speculated that it would be popping up from time to time. So here we are. As a refresher, the vulnerability disrupts WinRAR's handling of file extensions, opening doors for unauthorized code execution. What makes it particularly insidious is its ability to hide malicious executables within seemingly benign files such as PDFs or JPEGs in an archive. Basically, attackers can embed malicious code in an archive disguised as a JPEG, .txt, or other commonly recognized file type. They package everything within a single zip file, and then when it's unpacked by WinRAR, it gets executed. Since April 2023, the Dark Casino APT group has started exploiting the vulnerability to deliver the Trojan Dark Me. The malware supports multiple features such as collecting host information, taking screenshots, file manipulation, registry manipulation, command execution, self-updating, and maintaining persistence. During its initial phase, Dark Casino primarily conducted operations in Mediterranean countries and various other Asian nations utilizing online financial services. Recently, the group has changed phishing methods and aimed at users of cryptocurrencies worldwide, even including non-English-speaking Asian countries such as South Korea and Vietnam. I couldn't find any speculation on which nation state was backing this APT group. How common is that? And are there any quote unquote independent ATPs out there independent in the sense that they sell espionage to the highest bidder and don't have any strong affiliations with a given country?
1: Yeah, Chris, uh, that's a, you bring up an interesting question there because typically, and you're not wrong in that thought there. Typically APTs do get associated with some sort of a nation state or state nexus or something along those routes, you know? Um, However, I, I sometimes will, will ste- take a step back with folks and remind them that APT really stands for advanced persistent threat. And usually that gets associated with the resources of the espionage wing or the military wing of a national government, just primarily because of the advanced and the persistent part, right? Cyber criminals are eventually going to run out of money. Uh, you know, if they were to sink all of their resources into one target or one victim, they don't have that national directive like a state nexus or, or a military operation would where it's I don't want to call it a slush fund, but it's kind of, you know, as much money as you need versus we only have two Bitcoin left. Guys, we got to make this one count. Um, but I think in the terms of an advanced persistent threat, a group like Dark Casino has been given that name because they're an economically motivated threat actor that has been around for for quite a while but it is their technical prowess and learning ability that have given them this this, this denomination or have given them this, this name or have allowed them to use the acronym, if you will. And uh, I'm, I'm in, in the same agreement with you. I, I don't know if there's a particular nation state that's been behind them. Uh, however, you know, they have targeted countries kind of all over the world. Uh, they're targeting the countries that they've gone after have included everything from you know, uh, Malaysia, Korea, Ukraine, New Zealand, China, U.S., Ireland, Great Britain, Portugal, so on and so forth. So they've been kind of, you know, all over the world. There is not a specific focus on English-speaking nations either, which is typically something that you see like that target the West and whatnot. Uh, but where they've been given this 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 acronym or where they're allowed to use it has been in the fact that they've integrated a lot of different APT style techniques into their attack patterns. Now, you and I have talked about this uh, time and time again about adversaries kind of borrowing from others, if you will, maybe not borrowing, but more like, you know, well, it's a shared technique. So anybody out there can use it. These guys are very adept at doing that very good at kind of responding to an differences in an environment, um, pivoting if need be very complex attacks. I'm looking at the, uh, the diagram for this particular attack here. And I mean, it's, it's pretty intricate. There's a lot of different steps that kind of bubble out of this RAR file that gets sent out there and whatnot. But uh, nonetheless, I, I, I think it's an interesting one and a group that is one for folks to be watching for sure. Now, That being said, you did ask an important part here, which is, you know, is it possible that there's a group out there that has the same types of technical capabilities, but isn't country associated or, you know, next state nexus, but more sells their services out to the highest bidder or whatnot. We'll just call them cyber mercenaries. I'm sure that term has been used before, and I'm kind of cringing as I say it, but nonetheless, we'll call them cyber mercenaries that are out there. Absolutely. One hundred percent you know, groups out there that will sell to the highest bidder. Now, of course, we're talking about a dark and nefarious world. So all of the Hollywood speculation comes up, right? Don't turn your back. You can't trust these guys, so on and so forth, right? Who, Who's to say that the eventual handoff won't be, you know, some sort of uh, locked up and thrown in jail or having your entire infrastructure burnt down or anything like that. But that being said, you know, I still think uh, that it's an interesting Take to watch this group, this dark casino campaign, to watch it kind of grow and develop over the past few years, and see just how how advanced they've become. Um, but their primary targets include things like online casinos, uh, network banks, cryptocurrency platforms, and things like that. They're going after uh, users and staff of these online trading platforms. So the targets and the things that they've come after are very clear and very defined. Those are the groups who need to watch out for what Dark Casino is doing because that, you know, knowing who the
0: victims are, helps us tell folks, hey, be on the lookout for this activity. Yeah, and the researchers also make the comment that this attack method is hard to detect, but do we even need WinRAR in the corporate environment? I have not been a Windows user since WinRAR was a requirement to unpack archives, but have to imagine this is native functionality now.
1: Yeah, so this is it. this is an operating system thing. Uh, you, you, uh, you know, sending and unpacking a RAR file, uh, for anyone out there who's who hasn't had to go through the different types of compression formats that are out there, this is literally a .rar extension. Um, and WinRAR is the program that primarily gets used to extract these. However, and, and I'm shooting from the hip here, but I believe that you can also extract these with things like 7-Zip I know that there's command line tools that can be used to extract them. I, I don't know if you can just right click unzip natively in Windows or right click extract, I guess, natively in Windows, but I believe that it can be handled by other formats out there. You know, Chris, I, I have to agree with the statement you just made, which is like they say it's hard to detect, but really, I mean, I'm looking at this main attack process that's detailed in this report from NS Focus here. There are so many different indicators. That pop out of this, the creation of different files on disk, a bunch of things that, you know, may fall into the background of normal system noise. But you're right, man. I would start at the beginning with like, do we even need or have RAR files in the environment? And if we don't, there's my first indicator that I'm going to be using. And in fact, NS NSFocus's screenshots show that they're even using a trial version of WinRAR to walk through and create this report which shows, you know, they're not even utilizing WinRAR inside of that, right? Um, but I think uh, I think it's it's maybe more of a case of like, exactly as you defined it, do we need WinRAR in the environment? If not, then there's my first indicator. And from there on out, I'm just tracking to see what is WinRAR being used? Is it, is it being used? If so, what's it extracting? Like, I'm just following that process tree all the way down, right? But interestingly enough, Uh, It all starts with the RAR file coming in. And for anyone who's curious, and because I know we talked about this when it first was was released there, but the CVE itself, you know, goes through and it takes advantage of the file running mechanism of WinRAR uh, by constructing a decoy file, a folder with the same name, and a malicious file with the same name with a space at the end. It spoofs the API function that is called by WinRAR, allowing for the malicious file to be loaded. Now, Yes, definitely. You know something that may be difficult to detect if you're not watching. But I go back to the root, the same that way, the same way that you did. Chris, do you even need WinRAR? Should you even have it in the environment? Because if you don't, guess what
0: we're going to be detecting and blocking the use of WinRAR. Awesome. Okay, this one comes to us from G Data Cyber Defense on November first, twenty twenty three. Researcher Xavier Mertens reported a phishing attempt on one of his honeypots. What's noteworthy is that ThreatActor used the zpack archive and .wav file extension to infect the system with agent Tesla. ZPAC is a file compression format that offers a better compression ratio and journaling function when compared to widely used formats like zip and RAR. This means that ZPAC archives can be smaller, but it comes at the cost of software support. The attack takes the form of phishing, and the initial file was found in an email called purchaseorder.pdf.zpack. The attached archive goes from 6k to 1 gigabyte during extraction. It turns out that this file is a .NET executable with async methods and is bloated with 0 bytes. One of the indicators listed is zero entropy in the overlay section, and the analysis of the executable in a hex editor proved that 90% of the sample file is filled with 0 bytes. The extracted archive contains a .NET file which downloads a malicious file that hides by using the extension .wav. At any rate, the attacker used this to infect the system with Agent Tesla, which is a remote access Trojan and a data stealer that is delivered as a malware as a service. Essentially, this is used to gain initial access so the attacker can download other nasty things to the system. I find it funny that two major compression formats have become vectors for attack. Is there anything that stands out for you on this one, Matt? It seems like this should be fairly simply to create detections for.
1: Yeah, this would be another one where I would go the route. And now... I would go the route of say, like, you know, do we even use ZPAC? If we don't, you know, then then let's not, right? Now, where this becomes a little trickier is the ZPack format and the use of a Z, the ZPAC archiving or, I guess, extraction tool. um It is an open source tool, so it is available to be downloaded for free. um You know, anyone can use it out there, but it does obviously require kind of that, you know, specialized application and whatnot. I think this is going to be the first indicator for anybody who's out there and maybe the first area of user education as well is going to be, Hey, you know, if you receive an email attachment that says you must download software in order to open this particular thing, don't right. If it's a, you know, one of those instances where you try to open something in windows comes back or Mac comes back or whomever comes back and is like, I don't recognize this file format, right. Don't dig any further. You know, your legitimate business contacts are not going to spend their time discovering new compression formats to save the purchase order in a brand new thing that you've never seen before. You know what I mean? Like that, that conversation just doesn't make sense. You won't see that happening. 99% of people out there, if they need to compress something in their native operating system, they're right clicking and they're compressing, which in Windows is going to be a zip and Apple is going to be a zip. And it's going to save it to that format. And that's what you're going to receive it as in in most cases. So I think, you know, calling out the use of non-standard compression formats here is an important one. Number one. Um, However, I'll go the other route and say for the adversaries, a great job in defense evasion. Here, the attached archive goes from six kilobytes to one gigabyte during extraction, which ultimately results in a .NET executable that's bloated with zero bytes. Uh, Chris, we've talked about this on this podcast plenty of times too. Defense evasion: if I can get around a certain file size, then it won't be submitted to a sandbox. Might not even be scanned by a malware tool. Um, In that case. You know, they've
0: gotten around that, and that's likely what they're what they're doing in that case. Is a is the technique there, sorry to cut you off, is a the no technique worries. there that the file's too big to just automatically upload to a detonation software? Is that the tactic, or do we generally only see malware come in small file sizes?
1: Yeah, so gr- great question. Uh, there's a couple of things that are going to throw it off there. Number one is the use of the zpack file. So if my malware detection engine doesn't know what to do with ZPAC, then it's dead in the water right there, right? Number one. Number two, let's just say that my malware detection engine does know how to handle ZPACs. I upload it. Now, all of a sudden, it's going to be performing malware analysis on a gigabyte-based file, which means it's going to try and examine all of that code. Now, unless I've got some logic in there that says skip a bunch of zeros, Right, only look for the the code of valid of, of validity here. It might end up actually evading or causing too many issues. I know that the final file that gets dropped is a .NET executable that you know has uh, some functionality in it, ultimately re- re- leading to Agent Tesla and whatnot. However, you know, unless my malware analysis, my automated malware analysis tool is configured to kind of work around through these different hoops then it might not actually you know, perform or, or, or give a malicious assessment of that particular file. I would probably contend and make an argument that a, a compressed file that goes from six kilobytes to one gigabyte and is a ZPAC extension is probably enough for me to say highly suspicious, don't open this thing. But uh, again, right, if I'm a malware author and I'm trying to get around some simple detection techniques, the other thing, That might be going on here, Chris, which is an important consideration. This is a spearfish that's being delivered. So where it comes into play here, and a lot of you have probably seen this, if a spearfish is above a certain size, then your automated scannings or your automated spearfish detection tools won't uh, scan it. That's too large. I've had this happen with Google quite a lot where they'll come back and say, as a Gmail user, I guess I should say, um, as a Gmail user, I've seen plenty of instances where Gmail will come back and say, this attachment is too large, could not scan it, right? And it will try to open zips and scan the contents of those zips to tell you if something is bad. Same exact approach. Even if it's got ZPAC recognition, it's going to come back and say, hey, this file was too large to be scanned. Therefore, I can't offer you a decision on it unfortunately, a lot of users say, well, if I got the email, that means it passed our email security system. Therefore, it must
0: be good. And this is a way to get around that and maybe subvert some of that trust. That's interesting. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I've seen those uh, notifications in Google as well when I'm sending video files and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, uh, so the next one up is a technical analysis of the Darkgate Malware as a Service, which is widely available on cybercrime forums and presented by the Rastafari Persona, that's Rasta, far as in far away, and I as an eyeball. In the past months, it has been used by multiple threat actors, such as Threat Actor 577 and DuckTail. Darkgate is a loader with RAT capabilities developed in Delphi with modules developed in C++. It has gained notoriety in the second half of 2023 due to its capability to operate covertly and its agility to evade detection by antivirus systems. The analysis outlines the data obfuscation methods employed, including how C2 communications work, some of the RAT TTPs, such as a reverse shell that gets started in a dedicated process, privilege escalation, dynamic API resolution, APC injection. It's a very in-depth analysis and definitely worth a read for anybody interested in modern malware. They also list a bunch of artifacts that indicate whether a host has been infected or not. Is there anything that stood out for you in this one, Matt, and any easy or obvious behavioral hooks that detections could be written against? Yeah, reading through this one, uh, I found pretty interesting, primarily because
1: it's going after Discord tokens. Uh, I, I shouldn't say primarily, but one of the things that it does is it goes after Discord tokens, which kind of makes me wonder what it's looking for or what the ultimate goal is looking for there is maybe someone's trying to get into a chat or, um, you know, uh, impersonate a user or something along those lines. But, uh, I, I as I was reading through this, I'm like reading like about advanced, you know, all, all sorts of reverse engineering capabilities that they did. And they're going through and, and creating, you know, a bunch of different, I mean, that, hats off to the folks over at uh, Sequoia, I guess, um, who went through and put this post together because it's really detailed. Chris, as you mentioned, you are really technical and it's awesome. And then as I'm scrolling down, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, by the way, this thing uh, collects Discord tokens. And I'm like, well, OK, <laughs> that's that's an interesting one. Um, but nonetheless, you know, a lot of a lot of capabilities inside of this right up here, which I think could easily be used for folks uh, for detections. First off, there's a lot of PowerShell usage. I'm gonna call out like PowerShell logging is one of the most, one of the most powerful things that anyone here can do. Um, if that's something that you're concerned about. Uh, there is heavy use on LOL binaries or living off the land binaries and scripts, LOL bass, however they're called, LOL bins, LOL bass, whatever it is. Um, heavy reliance on that, which I think always presents a unique detection opportunity because you're looking for the use of a operating system or a native binary in a non-standard way, I think a lot of times that actually opens up detection mechanisms that that folks may not be familiar with. The biggest one is, you know, Cobalt Strike by default abuses run DLL 32. And when you know what it looks like, it st- sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, so I would say detections in that case, they do go through and mention uh, some of the network traffic. Chris, this is where I think some of the best detection opportunities come into place from a network perspective, because guess what? Communications are done over plain text HTTP to pre-configured ports. Um, I mean, it doesn't get simpler than that. If you're watching the network, you're able to actually see this stuff in plain text and uh, go through and you know detect that way. And this is where I love having a technical deep dive into a piece of malware that is so complex. It's got dozens of miter attack techniques and dozens of layers of code written to it just to send our C2 traffic over plain text HTTP. And I'm just like, really? Like y'all couldn't just, you know, go the
0: extra step and encrypt this, but
1: nonetheless. And, and,
0: sorry to jump in again, but uh, would we be looking at like using like Zeke or Suricata or something like that? To, oh, absolutely. To, yeah.
1: Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Zeke or Suricata would be very useful for this. Um, if anyone was doing packet capture or any sort of traffic, and I mean, you, I don't want to call it traffic interception, because a lot of traffic interception gets associated with interrupting or intercepting the encryption process. So you can read encrypted traffic folks. This is plain text. Mm-hmm. This is going out into the wild in, in easy to read form. So yeah, a tool like Zeke or Suricata or something would easily detect this very easily. Um, and then last but not least, I'll mention that at the end of this, they do drop a bunch of uh, inside of the blog post, I should say, they do drop a bunch of different files that you'd want to look for in order to determine, you know, if there's any sort of, uh, an infection or anything like that. And of course, you know, some of the usual suspects show up, you know, any desk PS exec, um, a bunch of different DLL and INI files and things like that. So I would say if anyone here is concerned about this one or want to just, you know, make sure they're, they're getting detection here, uh, go through and, and read this, uh, take a
0: look at some of the indicators towards the end, and you'll be able to detect some of this stuff really fast. Yeah. That one's a great technical analysis. Absolutely. All right. So the next one is coming to us from Microsoft. Their threat intelligence team has uncovered a supply chain attack by the North Korea based threat actor Diamond Sleet involving a malicious variant of an application developed by Cyberlink Corp, a software company that develops multimedia software products. This malicious file is a legitimate Cyberlink application installer that has been modified to include malicious code that downloads, decrypts, and loads a second stage payload. The file, which was signed using a valid certificate issued to CyberLink Corp., is hosted on legitimate update infrastructure owned by CyberLink and includes checks to limit the time window for execution and evade detection by security products. Thus far, the malicious activity has impacted over 100 devices in multiple countries, including Japan, Taiwan, Canada, and the United States. While Microsoft has not yet identified hands-on keyboard activity carried out after compromise via this malware, the group has historically exfiltrated sensitive data from victim environments, compromised software build environments, moved downstream to additional victims for further exploitation, and used techniques to establish persistent access to victim environments. Microsoft has added the signed cert to its disallowed list and communicated the supply chain compromise to CyberLink. What do we think of this one, Matt?
1: Oh, this is another one that, uh, takes advantage of a, I I, I mean, unfortunately, you know, Cyberlink's legitimate application installer here has been modified. This is a, I don't, a classic run-of-the-mill supply chain attack here, which someone has found a way to intercept or get into that build process, drop in some malicious code, and then use something that is, you know, distributed as a signed, validated installer. And unfortunately, uh, was also part of an update process as well. So, as Microsoft called out in their post, over 100 devices, multiple countries, Japan, Taiwan, Canada, US, so on and so forth. Um, interestingly enough, you know, I, I'm not sure, and, and this may be my own ignorance here, I'm not sure how wide of a reach CyberLink's software is and if that gives us an indication about who they were going after. Uh, Microsoft does track Sleek. For anyone who remembers Microsoft's former nomenclature, this would have been Zinc. Um, as a North Korea-based activity group, which is known to go after media, defense, and IT industries globally. I want to say, CyberLink, this would probably likely lean heavily on the media side of that, but you never know because it is a multimedia software product. Um, but that being said, you know it does uh, utilize the LAM load downloader, and there are plenty of indicators built into this blog post here that I highly recommend some folks take a look at, especially if you're in those industries- um, or if you use CyberLink. Uh, so maybe one of the first things I would do is, you know, if anyone has the ability to run sort of application inventory across their environment, see if CyberLink is something that you use, and then, you know, go and look to see if you've gotten this malicious uh, update from that package there. You definitely don't want to have North Korea hanging out in your environment for fun. Microsoft does provide some additional research, some additional IOCs, queries you can run, so on and so forth, as well as the uh, URL for the malicious installers and whatnot. So I definitely recommend following up on this one if you're in those industries. Uh, Again, when you've got a supply chain attack like this where it's intercepting the build and install process, it's almost a free and easy delivery mechanism for the adversaries. They're not spear phishing. They're not building their own, you know, kind of download stream in this case. They're taking advantage of a legitimate signed executable that's already on there. and if you have received this update before Microsoft went and, you know, disallowed the search or did something else, it's it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough because you might already have an installer on the system without even knowing about it. So definitely go look into these if you're in that
0: industry or this is something that that concerns you. All right. So our last one today is from the NL Times about how uh, low and slow operators stealing massive Or Sorry. The last one today is from the NL Times about a low and slow operator stealing massive IP. The Chinese hacker group Chimera broke into NXP, a Dutch microchip maker, at the end of 2017 and had access to the manufacturer's systems until the spring of 2020. Ouch. NXP states that the hackers caused no material damage but did steal intellectual property. How much is not yet known, but given the amount of time they had on there, I imagine it is not trivial. And given recent U.S. sanctions against China on chip technology, there has to be a lot of motivation to acquire this IP. According to NRC, the hackers used NXP employees' accounts to log into the company network. They obtained this information from previous data leaks from other services like LinkedIn or Facebook and used brute forces to guess the passwords. NXP protects its systems with an extra code provided over the telephone, but the hackers circumvented this double authorization by changing the telephone numbers. Once in the first computer, the hackers gradually expanded their access, erased their tracks, and snuck into protected parts of the network. There, they encrypted sensitive data they found and uploaded it to cloud storage services like Microsoft OneDrive. And the breach was only discovered after responders working on a breach of another company noticed the attackers had connected to the IPs located near NXP. The article stays at a high level, but is definitely an eye-opener. The fact that these adversaries could keep covering their tracks and exfiltrate data over the course of years at what I have to assume is a technically competent company speaks to their sophistication. What do you think of this one, Matt? I found it interesting the way the attackers used passwords from existing breaches and then bypass what sounds like some form of SMS to a fake.
1: Yeah. Yo, Chris, this, this article, this breach, this intrusion is a a case study in just how much adversaries can do with a little bit of persistence and a little bit of of technical gusto, if you will. Uh, You know, I think you, you calling out like, you know, multi-factor authentication was in place. So there was likely an element of, you know, safety or likely an element of assumption there. Like, oh, we've, we've got MFA in place. We're good to go, right? Everything's okay. Well, the adversaries, th- they look through data breaches of other sites. They took a wild shot in the dark that your users likely use the same types of passwords or the same types of algorithms. They were correct. And they went in and subverted MFA by changing the, the telephone numbers around, number one. So boom, they're in and, and yeah, they're likely, you know, in the top, 30% of adversaries, because a lot of folks will, will, won't will go that far, number one. Number two, they then go a step further. And, you know, I, I was reading through the report and seeing things, and you mentioned this as well, you know, th- they were doing things like encrypting sensitive data that they found, uploading it to OneDrive. So now I'm blending in to normal traffic, because no one in this part of the world, at least based on my understanding of a Microsoft footprint there, is going to suspect an upload to OneDrive, number one. The adversaries took their time, gradually expanding access rights, erasing their tracks and sneaking into protected parts of the network. I mean, you know, it's funny, we opened this week's episode by talking about APTs, and this is an example of an APT, a slow and slow approach. I think you called it out in the beginning. What was this? Almost a three-year breach. I mean, this is this is what an APT is in, in the classic definition. It's, it's a low and slow approach to going after that. The other thing I found interesting here was that this hack, and and this is another thing which is very, very consistent with APT-like behavior and advanced threat actor behavior, this hack was only detected because they used it to branch to other companies as well. So uh, if I remember correctly, I'm reading through the article here, the NXP hack only came to light when another Dutch company, Transavio, was hacked and noticed that the traffic came from NXP's headquarters. That speaks volumes to either how well the adversaries were hidden inside of NXP's networks or what they were actually using the network for. And this is classic advanced threat actor behavior. Break into sort of a, if you think of a lot of suppliers, especially in the chip manufacturing world or any sort of electronic or distribution world, think of one of the suppliers as maybe a hub with you know, everyone else being kind of a spoke, connected networks, shared files back and forth, direct upload mechanisms, so on and so forth. I mean, if I'm an adversary, I take over one, I then get access to many. And this is a, a classic case of how that kind of worked out. So I think there's a lot to unpack in this one. And the fact that we're kind of hearing about it now, despite the fact that it occurred, you know or at least I should say was shut down in 2020, is a good example of threat actors that could that do this type of corporate espionage, IP theft and whatnot, they're still out there. They're still utilizing the advanced techniques. They're still out there branching from, you know, one company to another. And it finishes in the NL Times, it finishes by saying, according to the newspaper, at least seven Taiwanese chip companies have also fallen victim to this same hacker group. I mean, Chris, that is that's their goal, right? You mentioned chip sanctions, and you mentioned other types of economic limitations placed on things this is exactly how an adversary responds to that type of stuff they go and they hack their way through stealing all the ip that they can and i don't want to make any assumptions because i don't obviously don't see the final product but if you had taken this article and placed it in 2011 2012 when it was like the apt corporate espionage heyday back then you would not no one would bat an eye I would say this looks exactly like it. So for anyone who remembers kind of, you know, the APT1 days where we saw a lot of this type of stuff happen, it's still very present. It's still very much out there. And these types of cases, these types of threat actors are still very, very active out there in the world. So if you're on the defended side, if you're on the blue team side, keep an eye out and just understand that all this types of data is always vulnerable to adversaries because there's
0: someone out there who always wants access to it. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember too, especially given the nature of this IP. Like, it gets framed as like corporate espionage, but it's really national defense underneath it. When we think about the way technology is used in defense systems and the military, you know, the capability to make advanced chips is much more than just economic.
1: Absolutely, no, hundred. I mean, it goes both ways, right? If I hack into a chip manufacturer and I steal their IP, am I stealing? the way that another country's military utilizes those chips or am i stealing away for my military to use those chips or am i stealing both yeah right um and and if you think about and you said it right the way that technology is, is you know kind of embedded in everything that we do these days no pun intended there um, because of course there's also embedded technologies but the way that technology is part of everything that we do these days what you steal might have very, very vast and far-reaching outputs. A lot of times, folks think, "Oh, it's so that they can make it cheaper and sell a cloned version," you know, and and, and undercut the market. And yes, yeah, sometimes that is definitely the outcome. But in other cases, and I, I won't go too much into this one, but many years ago, about about ten years ago, um, I worked a, a an incident response case that was a chip manufacturer. And the chip manufacturer had a stronghold on the market because of the way they assembled their devices. And I, I won't say much more than that, but I'll just say that their method of assembly was their IP, was their market differentiator. And if anyone stole the chip schematics, whatever, they were like, yeah, you can buy these chips anywhere, right? But the way that we bring these things together and the additional thing that we add is really what we're protecting here, right? The way that we kind of marry these ingredients. And I, I, I view it very much to making food. I can give 10 people the exact same set of ingredients. It does not mean I'm going to get 10 of the exact same dishes, right? One of those dishes is going to be downright awful. One of those dishes is going to be, you know, the most amazing thing you've ever had, depending on background influence, whatever it might be. But there's an important part there, which is the thing that makes the difference there is how that individual brings those things together. Or if we scale this out, how that enterprise brings those things together. But that is oftentimes overlooked. You know, a lot of times folks think, oh, you just want to steal the, you know, you want to steal my blueprints on this and that. And it's like, no, sometimes they want to go after how your company does what it does. But think about the far-reaching implications of that. Chris, you mentioned it. If it's used in a national defense manner, well, now we've got very, very valuable secrets walking out the door that can not only be subverted by an enemy,
0: but they can also be imitated by an enemy as well. And either one of those situations is, is not fun. Yeah, I always found it such a coincidence that the Chinese next-gen fighters look a lot like the F-35s.
1: <laughs> I, I, uh, I have often wondered the same thing myself, but I don't know, maybe if two people sat in a room or if maybe if two people sat in two rooms and never talked to each other ever, had never known each other, and you said to both of them design a fighter jet, Maybe they'll come out with the same thing. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Yeah, who knows? There's
1: some statistical probability there. Yeah.
0: Awesome, Matt. This was a fun one. Thanks again for bringing your depth of knowledge to these conversations. Uh, I find them fascinating, and I look forward to doing it again next week. Can't wait for it. And uh, just one final call out here, Chris. You introduced it in the beginning.
1: I'm happy to mention it at the end. Is for everyone out there. Cybersecurity cares. Please go and uh, check that out. Cybersecurity-cares.com. We'd love to have you come and uh, contribute towards this. Awesome cause. And uh, thanks to, to Chris and the team for, for bringing this out for us. I'm looking forward to see what we raise this year.
0: Awesome. Thanks, sir. Take care. Take care. Bye. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.